You know, last time we were together in the book of John, we saw one of the most, or one of the greatest, I would call it, promises ever given by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come this morning back to John, we may even come to what some consider the greatest promise ever given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he's made a number of great promises, but this one, possibly it's perplexed you over the years, it is a great one, and it's on the subject of prayer. I'll invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, as we return to the exposition of God's Word, specifically looking at verses 12 through 15. Remember, as you turn there, it's, it's Passover season, but beyond Passover season, it's Thursday night. He would be lifted up to the cross in just a few short hours. He has celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He is around the table with them, and he makes this statement in 14, 13, and 14. Look at it. Jesus said, whatever... You ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What a statement. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Later that night, as he left that Passover scene, he probably passed over the Kidron Valley. He went up through the Mount of Olives and into Gethsemane. But it was later that night, he made this statement, look over in chapter 15, in verse 7, where he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, here it is again, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. In fact, if you have your Bible open, look over to chapter 16 in verse 24. Until now, there in that discourse, it's all that night, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that you will receive that your joy may be made full. Those are quite some promises, aren't they? There it is. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Grace Church, is this just a blank check, if you will, in the request form to ask anything and it will be given? I mean, certainly it states that in Scripture, I suppose I could ask the question, is God a genie in a lamp that gives you and grants you whatever you wish? What does this mean? How shall we understand it? Well, let me set the context for you. I gave you some of it. Imagine being with him for three years and suddenly since chapter 13 and in the recent months, he begins to tell them about his departure. He begins to say, I'm going to leave, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And you can imagine these starry-eyed disciples for three years in ministry with the Lord Jesus Christ, watching him provide for their every need, meeting their every need, performing miracles that no one has ever done before, and then he's going to leave. In fact, this is that night, as I mentioned on Thursday, the night before the cross. Imagine being at that Passover table and him dipping the bread and said, somebody around this table is going to betray me. Imagine if you were a disciple and you heard the prophetic word that by the time this night is over, you will all flee. Imagine if you're looking into the eyes of your friend and maybe fellow fisherman, the apostle Peter, and he said, before this night is over... You will deny me three times. 
These disciples are discouraged, to say the least. And so the question arises, what does Jesus say to these bewildered disciples in the midst of their turmoil? In the midst of his departure, what would he tell them? Well, we've been studying here from John 14, 1 down through 15. He gives five declarations of hope in the midst of chaos. Five declarations of hope. These disciples needed hope. They needed encouragement. And whether you were one of the original 11 that's now left, Judas had left the room, or you're a disciple of Jesus, these declarations of hope are true today. We've already looked at the first three in depth. We said that, number one, he declares words of comfort. He opened that chapter, you remember, in 14.1, let not your hearts be, what? Troubled. And he went on to tell them of the glory of heaven. And then secondly, he made and declared wondrous claims. We got to that passage where, where are you going, one of them asked. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so he's giving them words of comfort to encourage them. He's declaring wondrous claims that I am the only way to the Father. I am not a way, a truth, a life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father in our own day but through the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he declared the wonder of his character. Specifically, if you look down in verse 10, he said, Do you not believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, he said, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. He declares the wonder of his character, the wonder of his uniqueness, the wonder of his oneness with the Father, and by declaring that wonder, we looked extensively that it is a declaration of his deity. But as you get to verse 12 and down through 15, he's moving ever greater to his departure, and he gives these promises. And he says to the disciples that his departure will not be the end of his work on earth, he goes on to tell him in verse 12, you're going to do greater works. And with his departure to his father, it does not mean the end of communion that they enjoyed both with him and God the Father. It's as though Jesus is saying to them, he's saying to us this morning, my departure, little flock, will not result in a lack of power, but my power will be released to you in two fresh ways. And that fourth declaration was the first one where he declares the wonder, a wondrous consequence. Look at verse 12. I'll just touch on it. I spoke on this two weeks ago. But he says, truly, truly, I say to you, imagine if you're hearing this, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I am going to the Father. Here's a wondrous consequence. I'm departing, and as I depart, you're going to do greater works. Greater works, he said, than he did, and that's because he went to the Father. Because as he goes to the Father, we understood and looked there that he is going to release the Holy Spirit. In fact, look at chapter 14 in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper I love that little phrase, to be with you forever. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to them. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to us. And by virtue of the Holy Spirit's work, both in teaching and convicting of sin, it's going to lead to greater works. In fact, would you look over in chapter 16 in verse 7, and I think you know this if you've been around the truth for a little bit of time, Jesus said to them there, still in that upper room discourse, or at least in that discourse that night, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, it's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So he goes to the Father, looking forward to his death and 
amount of hours. And he, as he goes, he dies on the cross for our sin. He's glorious raised from the dead on the third day. He ascends into glory. And then he dispasses, if you will, the Holy Spirit so that we would do the works that Jesus did, the, at least the apostles would, in the physical realm. But we noted a couple weeks ago that we would do even greater works. We define that as miracles in the spiritual realm. We said last a couple weeks ago that the greater works of power are not greater works in miraculous power. They are greater works in scope and in extent of the release of the gospel. Even Keith said this morning, what's happening globally is so encouraging. And part of that is believers all over the globe declaring the gospel. And so the greater works are not the works of physical miracles, but spiritual works in terms of the gospel. And I took you through the book of Acts to show you that. In fact, you remember that at Peter's preaching at Pentecost, three thousand believers were added in what? In one day. And the 3,000 believers on that day of Pentecost was far more than the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He lived and ministered all of his life in Palestine. And at the end of three years, at least if you go back to Acts chapter 1, there's 120 followers in that room gathered for prayer. That's not to say that Obviously, not to focus in glory on the Lord Jesus Christ, but he said, it's to my advantage that I go because I'm going to send the helper to you and you will not only do the works that I've done, you will do greater works and it's the power of the gospel of a transformed life and one that's actually saved. In fact, in the next 300 years in church history, Christianity closed nearly all the temples of the Roman Empire and numbered its converts by the millions. And so these were the greater works. And if the disciples were afraid, our Lord Jesus Christ was saying, you will receive power from on high. That power, if you're a believer this morning, resides in you. We might not have the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with us, but he said to you, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I go away, the Holy Spirit's going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to convict of sin and righteousness. And that was all tracked through the book of Acts. In fact, the apostles as well did wonderful works, but we don't define greater works in terms of more supernatural power, more physical miracles. We defined that and saw that through the book of Acts, that it's the presence of a changed heart. In fact, I would ask you, I was just a couple weeks ago for a few days in the land of Israel, and I was at the pool of Siloam, and I came out, and there we were, just right that area where that man was put in John chapter 5 into the pool of water. And he couldn't get into the pool of water because it would, only, it would only be stirred at certain times. And obviously the Lord Jesus Christ healed that man in an instant. But he also healed him not only physically but by faith. And certainly the greater miracle is not the fact that the man walked. The greater miracle is that for nearly 2,000 years now he's been in glory, Right? He had his sins forgiven. That is the greatest miracle, and it continues today. So there's the wondrous consequence. Consequence. It's the, the role of the Holy Spirit. But there's one final declaration of hope this morning. And it's a promise of, I call it, of wondrous capacity. And it's the, the text we read in 13 and 14. Look at it again right there in verse 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And verse 14, he repeats it. If you ask me anything in my name, he said, I will do it. Now, he's encouraging these disciples who are losing their master and Lord. And what he does is he removes the distance by prayer. And prayer serves as the key for doing greater things that he promised. But what does this mean? Certainly you have asked this. What does it mean, whatever you ask? I mean, does it really mean whatever? 
What is it that you're praying for as a single, even right now? What is it that you're praying for in your family or for your children? What does that mean, whatever you ask, I will do? It's a great question. Can you really ask anything and he will do it? And you don't want to take away from the statement here because Jesus promises to act in response to prayer. Twice he says, I will do it. But I think you would agree with me that whatever you ask cannot mean what I call absolute whatever. Of course, that wouldn't be true. In fact, far from it being true, let me just take you through this just quickly. Let me tell you why that's not true on whatever. In fact, if you wanted me to define the whatever, I would define the whatever in the previous verse as works and the whatever as greater works. That's really what he's speaking about here. But let me give you four conditions that unlock this wondrous capacity of prayer, okay? Four conditions that are in the text that as we pray, how we can pray according to God's will. And I, and I, I paused this week and prayed if conditions was the right word because I felt like in some ways it puts a limit on it when here this seems to be so, you know, out there, whatever you ask. But nevertheless, it's, it's right in the text. There's some conditions that actually unlock this wondrous capacity, this wondrous power of prayer. The first condition is this. You must be a believer. You must be a believer. In fact, if you go back in your scripture, look at verse 12. He says there in the context, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. But you can see that phrase there in verse 12, whoever believes in me. Let me just acknowledge here that there's a condition set within the text, and the condition is that you've placed your faith in Christ. That's not to, to say that the Lord is never going to hear the repentant cry of an unsaved person. But when you talk about the power of prayer and you talk about your prayer life, here is a condition set down in the text. And the condition is this, you believe in me. And the word believe there is set in the present tense. You're continuing to believe. In other words, this power released in prayer is for believers. It's for men and women who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for people who have submitted to his lordship. That's the first condition. Number one, you must be a believer. The second condition is bound up in the text again. Look down in verse 13. Whatever you ask, and then it's qualified here, in my, what? Name. Here's the second condition. You must pray in his name. Now that phrase, to pray in his name, is repeated seven times in this discourse again. So we'll come back to it again. But seven different times he makes that statement. Now, you would say, well, Scott, I think I, I should pray, and I usually do pray. And when I pray, I get to the end of my prayer, and I say, in Jesus' what name, and partly that comes out of here. But you might be asking, do we simply attach this to his name? Uh, at the end of prayer and magically it will be done? Is this some magic chant that if you just pray and then at the end of it attach his name to it, you have your request because you've attached his name? Well, I think obviously not. To pray, beloved, in his name means that you and I are pleading, if you will, at least to say at the beginning, the merits of his son. The fact that we stand before God the Father and before His Son, not based on our righteousness, but His. We have no standing of our own before God at all. So it's at least, we'd say, acknowledging that. But to pray in the name of Christ is to pray His nature. It, it is to pray His character. Names in the Scripture meant something. In fact, the names in the scripture meant the whole of a person. In fact, I'll illustrate that just two ways, both with the name of God 
and then with the name of Jesus. But when you look in Scripture, the name of God is but the revealing of the character of God, right? That when you think of his great name, I am, when you think of the name Jehovah, when you think of the ever, you know, existing one, that is his name according to Exodus. But then you have a number of names of God in the scripture in Hebrew. You have the name Elohim, and that designates God as, who knows, creator, Genesis 1. And then there's another name of God, El Elyon, which means that he's the sovereign ruler, that he is God most high, Genesis 14. Then you have another name. Maybe some of you have sung this name. He is El Shaddai. El Shaddai is a name of God in the Old Testament. It means mighty God. And many years ago, Amy Grant sang that song. How many of you remember that song, El Shaddai? Well, you're singing. What is that? You're singing about God. What are you singing about God? You're singing at that point that he's mighty. And then there's other terms, Jehovah Jireh, Genesis 22, the Lord will provide. There's Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner, Exodus 17. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord healeth in Exodus 17. There's Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord is my shepherd. So when he said that phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, you put that together. There's Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, 1 Samuel chapter 1. There is Jehovah Shalom, which is the Lord is our peace. Jehovah Shamna, the Lord is present, Ezekiel 48, and others. What are those? Those are names of God. Those names represent his character. They represent his nature. They represent to us the person of God. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, we would say, is the greatest name of them all. Just think about his, his name. He's the Lord. He's Jesus He's Christ, which means he's savior, he's master, and he's the king. So again, he's going to tell us you've got to be a believer. But secondly, when you pray, you've got to pray in his name. You've got to pray with what is consistent with his character. And then certainly in the book of John, we've been looking at the great I am statements in John chapter 6, that I am the bread of life. I am, he said in John 4, the living water. In John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He told us in John 10 that he was the good and is the good shepherd. In Isaiah 4, 2, he said he was the branch. In Revelation 22, it says that he's the bright and morning star. When John the Baptist beheld him for the first time in John 1, he cried out, the Lamb of God that take away the sins of the world. In Song of Solomon, he's called the Rose of Sharon. In the Song of Solomon, in chapter 2, he's called the Lily of the Valley. You remember in Isaiah chapter 9, he's called Wonderful Counselor. He's called Mighty God. He's called Eternal Father. And he's called the Prince of, what? Peace. Those are all names. You say, well, Scott, then what does it mean? How do I pray? Well, you pray in this way. You pray in his name. It's to pray the concerns and the desires of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you come into prayer with him, you're asking, what pleases Christ? What enhances God? What enhances the person of Christ? When you come into his presence, you're not just attaching this to the end of your prayer. Your prayer is consumed with the passion and the person and the character and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to pray in his name is to pray this way. Christ, fulfill your plans. Christ, fulfill your agenda. Christ, I pray that you would redeem this person. Christ, I pray that your kingdom would come. That your will would be done. Remember when Jesus taught us to pray? He gave us those first three petitions. He said, hallowed be thy what? Name. Holy is the name. We sing this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And some people think that was 
said, if you will, because of the tri triune God in three persons. I actually don't think that. I think when you look in the Hebrew there, I think it was emphasized by the Jews because they were emphasizing the utter holiness of God's character. Holy, holy, holy is his name. And so you're praying, and when you are praying, you're praying to be consistent with his nature, consistent with his purpose. And I would think maybe we would often say that our prayers are filled with our kingdom, our plan, our desires, our families, that the priority and the pursuit of Christ's kingdom takes a back seat. I think so often in our life we say it's my money, my car, my friends, my possessions, my will be done. But beloved, just a reminder, Jesus is the king and Jesus, you rule my life. Holy, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy rule be done. So watch this. Here's the condition. You gotta be a believer. But secondly, you gotta pray in his name. But listen, you can ask, you can pray, but you pray in his name. But then there's a third condition. A third condition. It's there in the text. Look down again. He said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. He says in verse 13, with a purpose clause, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, you're praying, here's a condition. I'm not trying to limit this, but I am trying to say that the conditions are in the text, that as you pray in the name of Christ, you're praying to this end. Father, glorify yourself. Father, reveal yourself. Father, reveal yourself in my marriage. Reveal yourself in your character in my business. Reveal yourself through my music. Reveal yourself through my business endeavor. Reveal yourself through my schooling. You're praying that the Father would be glorified. That his glory, that his character, that his attributes would be revealed. This is the supreme goal of prayer, is to glorify God. And I say it's the supreme goal because it was the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look over in John 17. His whole life existed for this purpose. Do you remember there in John 17 and verse 1 in the high priestly prayer when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. In other words, reveal your son in his death. That the Son may, what? Glorify you. His whole mission of life was to glorify his Father. In fact, look down at John 17, 4. He said, I glorified you on earth. He said there, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so his whole life was given to his glory. In fact, in a very interesting phrase... Look at John 17, 6. I have manifested, what? Your name to the people. In other words, I've manifested your character. I've manifested your compassion. I've manifested your mercy. I've manifested your kindness. I've manifested your salvation. I've manifested your forgiveness. I even revealed my pre-incarnate glory up on that mountain. In other words, my existence was to manifest your character, which in essence is to say, to manifest your name. And when I think about this, that prayer for us is to pray, believers pray, we pray in his name, and we pray with this purpose in mind to glorify God. And so you get back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, pray in this way. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then, of course, those first three petitions are Godward in their focus. The second three petitions are for man and his need. And, but maybe it's a good reminder that we don't just rush into the presence of God without recognizing who he is, who we're praying to. When you are praying for God's will to be done on earth, you are praying for the complete obedience of everyone upon the earth. 
You're praying your kingdom come, your will be done. You are praying for God's kingdom to be fully established. You're praying as you walk into his presence, thy kingdom come. You're praying for God's name to be honored in every way. You're praying, hallowed be thy name. You're praying for God's perfect presence, for his rule, for his reign, which is obviously not happening right now. Today, people are obviously rebelling against God, but those requests are an expression of our desire that God would bring all rebellion on this earth to an end both in this world and even in our own life. You are praying for God to establish his reign, praying for God to establish his rule. You're praying for that right now. This is the way that you pray. And then he says, look at it again in the text, and back in 1414, he repeats it there, and he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And he repeats the promise with a slight difference, and I want you to note this slight difference here. He says in verse 14, if you, who are you asking? You're asking me. So you're not only to pray in his name, but here you are praying to Christ himself. So sometimes people ask me, they say, Scott, who do you address prayer to. Well, you can address it to God the Father, but here in this text, you can also address prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So GCV prayer is addressed to the Son as well as to the Father, but predominantly we see it addressed to the Father. So here's this wondrous capacity that's unlocked. Listen, if you pray in his name and pray according to God's will that he would be glorified, he said, I'm going to do it. So I would ask you this morning, what are you praying for in your life and for your family? I mean, I, I don't want to limit us. We, we ought to pray. And we ought to pray for those things that God is desirous of seeing accomplished. Now, obviously, he's sovereign in that. But Jesus just said, whatever you ask in my name, that the Father would be glorified, I'm going to do it. So listen, we ought to be running into his presence. We ought to be praying both for our physical needs, yes, but also those greater spiritual needs as well. But there's one more condition here, and I don't want to miss this. It's you must obey Christ. It's the fourth condition and I want you to glance at your Bible, and in my Bible, I have a paragraph marker there that it begins a new paragraph, and I understand that. But I'm going to link verse 15 back with 12 through 14. He says to the disciples right there and to us this morning, if you love me, you will keep my, what, commandments. Now, the question would be, where does this verse fit some say there's no connection with the preceding verses in this discourse, particularly in 12 through 14. I don't believe that. Yeah, the question would be, does it move us forward or does it look back? Does it move it forward in the teaching of the Holy Spirit that will come or does it look back? And perhaps the answer is both. I think it's a hinge for both. If you look at verse 15, if you love me, that conditional clause controls the grammar, I would say to you, in the, in the next eight verses. In fact, in the next eight verses that will begin next week, he eight different times will say, if you love me. And I think it's only appropriate that the one who loved us to the very end in John 13, 1, would now tell us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments so I think it's a hinge for both. And here you will show your love, you know this, Grace Church, by your obedience. Glance down in the text at chapter 14, verse 21. He'll say it often. Some of the greatest passages in the scripture, in the Bible, and certainly the gospel of John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, or he it is who loves me. And if anyone loves me, 
He will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me, the opposite, does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Obedience, beloved, let me say this, is linked with powerful prayer. Now, when I speak of obedience, I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about the holiness of the life, the ability to walk in obedience, if you will, continually to the commands of Christ, because God, beloved, will not bless a disobedient life, and he won't even answer prayer with one who's not walking with him. For example, two guys. Their names in the Old Testament were Hophni and Phinehas. Phinehas. Remember, do you remember in 1 Samuel 4? They brought the Ark of, of the Covenant. It's the Ark. They kept things in that Ark. And they brought it into the battle with the Philistines. And I think they brought it into the battle with them against their enemy because the ark was their magic trick, if you will. It was their magic trick. Listen, as long as we bring the ark, it's going to help us defeat the Philistines. But at the same time, those two men were sexually assaulting women in the temple in their priestly duties that should not have included that. They're assaulting women. But now with the Philistines breathing down their necks, they wanted God to bless them. Well, God did not bless them. The Philistines won the battle. They killed Hophni and Phinehas, and they captured the ark. In other words, the lesson we learn there is don't mess with God, okay? He is not a toy, he is not a personal vending machine. There's something in the scripture here in prayer that you believe. You pray in his name. You pray that God would be glorified. But I really think 15 is linked back and moves forward. I think he's giving a condition in prayer here. In other words, when you pray, you're coming to him. You're confessing your sin. You're cleaning your sin off, if you will, as you come into his presence. In fact, as you pray, you're coming into it and you're saying, hallowed be thy name. And you're coming into the focus of God for his kingdom come. His will be done. Do you remember when James said in 4.2, when we studied through that, you do not have... Because you do not, what? Ask, and you ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Interesting, you can ask, but if you're asking for yourself, for your kingdom, for your own glory, living a clearly disobedient life, then listen, that prayer of I will do it is not going to come into motion for you. Harry Ironside, the famous preacher from the previous century, was on the platform of his church, and there was a young pastor who sat with him during the service, and as they were on that platform, a young lady entered, and the pastor told the younger pastor that she had formerly been, as he saw this woman walk in, a very active member, and then she began to become enamored with the world, and that this was the first time he had seen her in church in months. And Ironside preached on this passage of Scripture, the one we're talking about, that night. And she was greatly incensed and came to him after the meeting. And she said to him, how dare you tell these people that if you ask anything in the name of Jesus, he will do it. Just right up to him. How dare you tell him this? Dr. Ironside said, why don't you sit down and tell me about it? She told him that 
Her father had been desperately ill months before. And while the doctor was up in his room, she knelt in the living room, claimed that promise, and prayed in Jesus' name for his recovery. When the doctor came down from the room, he told her that her father was dead. So she said to Ironside, now, she said, don't tell me that God keeps his promises. And Ironside said, did you read the next verse? If ye, in his King James, love me, keep my commandments. Ironside asked her what would happen if she found a check made out to someone else and tried to cash it by signing that name. She said, I would be a forger. So he referred to her to this verse, and he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he asked her, have you been doing that? And as soon as he asked her that, she turned red. And he explained that what she was trying to do was the same thing as trying to cash a check made out to somebody else's name. Listen, I I just think, beloved, I'm saying to us that our obedience to him is evidence of our love for him, and this promise is given to those who love him and to those who obey his commandments. So there's some conditions. you got to be a believer you got to pray in his name. you got to pray that the Father would be glorified. And you have to have a life that's consistent with what he taught. There's some scriptures that will come up on the screen. I just want you to touch on this, on the obedience of, to, to our Lord's commandments in prayer. Look at the next slide. First John, whatever we ask, whatever, there it is again, we receive from him. Watch this, though. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I mean, the truth is, is if your life pleases the Lord and you're asking God to be glorified, you will pray in accordance with the prayers that Christ would pray to to his father. But you keep his commandments. Look at the next slide. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God. In other words, we love him vertically and we obey his commandments For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome for the believer. They're a joy. And then look at this next one. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything, and now this phrase, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so there's a link here with obedience and the scripture. Look back just for a moment in verse 15. I want to just clarify one thing, and to me it's a thrilling truth. Jesus said, and these are his words, if you love me, now watch this, you will keep, he says, my commandments. Interesting. You're you're going to keep my commandments. Glance down at 1423, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now, his commandments and that phrase there are really synonymous. He will keep my words. What is that? I'm just asking you as we study the Bible. What are his commandments and what are his words? I mean, I don't know if your mind thinks, is he talking about the Ten Commandments? I mean, his words, is it maybe the words in the scripture? Let me say this to you. When he uses that phrase, commandments and words, he is talking about the entire revelation from God the Father given to his son. This is an all-inclusive statement, if you will. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean? It's the entire revelation of God's written word. In other words, this Bible is the Word of God, all of it, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You say, well, why would you say that? And why does he say that here? Let me just back you up. Just look back at John 12. Let me just show you this. These are scriptures that mean so much even to my own heart. Remember this in 1249? He said there, for I have not, Jesus, 1249, spoken... On my own authority, well, then how are you speaking? Look at 49. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. 
And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Beloved, this is the authority of the Word of God. You hold in your hand a Bible that is fully inerrant, fully inspired. And so when he says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. You're going to keep my word. He's really talking about all the revelation revealed to us in these books of the Bible. In fact, look back at John 14 just for a moment. Do you remember there in verse 9? Jesus, uh, Jesus said to him, and he's speaking to Philip in 14.9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Then he said, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Watch this. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. There it is. He doesn't speak. In other words, you have the life of Christ. You have the, the power of Christ. But you have the words of Christ. The commandments of Christ. You keep his word. But that's synonymous with saying you're committed to the entire revelation of God, both old and new. In fact, would you glance down one more in 1424? He said there, Whoever does not love me, it's opposite, does not keep my words. And then this phrase, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So here, beloved, is this wondrous consequence. He goes and he's put inside of you, we'll start that next week, the power and the person of the Holy Spirit, but he gives you this wondrous capacity in prayer, but he puts four conditions on it. You got to be a believer. You got to pray in his name. You got to pray that the Father would be glorified, and you must, by consistency, obey him. But often we live a, a paralyzed life, and, and so I, I, a paralyzed life, you, you say from what way? Well, either at times... We just, if we're walking on a, on a cliff, we can fall off on either side in our prayer life. There's times in our life where we think, hey, God's just so sovereign that you just ask him, in, you don't ask him anything. You, you just don't pray. Then the other side of the precipice, if you will, on that cliff is to ask selfishly. Where in the one example, over here, you become separated by God and you don't live with a prayer life. But then on the other one, over here, you're demanding from God for God to do your will. In fact, I have this, this graph here, and I got this from Paul Miller, A Praying Life. It's been just healthy for me. So on the one hand, you, you don't ask, and you're separated from God, and he does nothing, and God by way of line, is over you. And he's impersonal. But the truth is, he says, when I go, I'm going to send you the presence of the Spirit, and then in that day, you can ask me anything in my name. But on the other hand, and we're around people that do this, who ask selfishly. They demand of God. They name it and claim it as though if they ask it, they're going to receive it. So that God then does their will, and in this picture, they're over God, me, then God. Whereas in the middle, you've got there on that bridge, if you will, God and me. And so the antidote on your left is to ask boldly. Now, now don't miss this. You're to ask boldly. You say, well, Scott, I, what if I just don't feel like even my request is in thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, well, ask boldly. And the example of that is the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. And so he said, take this, what? Cup from me. The Lord Jesus Christ was very honest. He's human. He prayed his heart. 
He prayed his will. As he's in Gethsemane on that mountainside, he's saying, Abba, Father, anything's possible. And including this, you could take this cup. You can take this cup of suffering. You can take the wrath of God that will be spent on me. He, he's praying. He's asking boldly. But then you come to the other side. The antidote to asking selfishly is this, is to surrender completely. When he prayed and he finished that prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so listen, I want to encourage you to ask boldly, but to surrender completely. But I don't want you to think you can't bring your every request to him. But as you come to him, you're going to pray in his name. You're going to pray that the Father would be glorified. And you're going to also spend time confessing your sin because he's not going to purposefully bless a disobedient life. So often, beloved, I think we're not balanced. We're either too confident in ourselves or we're, on the other hand, so despairing of ourselves. And sometimes in both cases, we become paralyzed, as Miller said, and we're not moving towards God. We are to ask boldly, but we are to surrender completely. So listen, with his departure, far from cutting off his mission, the mission exists in this room. You are his disciples and are to go unto all of the world and make what? Disciples. He has empowered you with the person of the Holy Spirit. And he has given you a wondrous capacity in prayer. Prayer will usher us into his presence. It will release us to do greater things. And as we go into his presence, we're mindful he is at the right hand of the Father that he is ruling from heaven, that all authority has been given unto him, and he now sends you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to pray. I pray that we would become a praying church, praying according to his will, praying according to his glory. May that be true of us.